You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Well, this morning, I wanted to speak on a topic that I rarely hear spoken of in Messianic synagogues, and it happens to be the next installment in the Gospel of Luke in our study. We have been studying in here since May of 2020. It's our longest study. It's going to go nearly 21 months. We've learned a lot. We've been transformed quite a bit by this Gospel. We're going to hear this morning the sounds of the crucifixion. I think in Messianic synagogues, we don't want to speak about Slivat Yeshua, the crucifixion of the Messiah, Hatzlav, the cross. We, in Messianic synagogues, somehow maybe we're embarrassed about it. I'm not embarrassed about it. So let's pick it up in Luke chapter 23. We left off last Shabbat, and let's begin reading in verse 26. And as they led him away, they grabbed a man, Shimon, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the countryside. They placed on him the crossbeam to carry behind Yeshua. Now a great multitude of people was following him, including women who were mourning and singing dirges for him. But Yeshua, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never gave birth. And the breasts that did not feed, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Others, two evildoers, were also led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, and the evildoers, one on his right and the other on his left. But Yeshua was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Then they cast lots, dividing up his clothing. The people stood there watching, and even the leaders were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, the chosen one. The soldiers likewise mocked him coming up and bringing him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. My friends, how amazing it is that the execution stake has become a symbol of hope for millions of people. When Yeshua was crucified, the tree of sacrifice was nothing more than an instrument of execution. It was an instrument of horrific pain and suffering. Yet Adonai took the most horrible experience of pain, suffering, and humiliation in all of human history, and he turned it into something good, our redemption. You know, after the World Trade Center towers crumbled on September 11, 2001, workmen immediately began to remove the rubble looking for survivors. 
On September the 12th, one of the workmen looked up in the rubble and saw a huge cross 20 feet tall. And the cross became a place of wonder and worship for the crews. It was later then moved to a church, and it has been installed in a prominent place today outside the New World Trade Center Museum as a reminder of how Adonai can bring hope out of suffering. And so as we've been proceeding through this last section of the Gospel of Luke, I ended up last Shabbat with one conclusion that the death of Yeshua is no more the fault of our Jewish people than it is of all mankind. We've all asked ourselves at one point in our lives, why did he die such a horrible death? Actually, it would be more helpful, I think, to answer the greater question, not why he died, but why he had to. The sacrificial suffering and death of the innocent in place of the guilty, it's nothing new to Judaism. In ancient Israel's temple, the blood of animal sacrifices flowed freely to satisfy God's requirement of atonement. On Pesach, on Passover, it was only the blood of an innocent lamb applied to the doorposts of every Hebrew home that caused death to Pesach, to Passover. You recall once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would take the blood of an innocent animal, right, and sprinkle it on the altar for the forgiveness of our sins. And Adonai would accept the death of the innocent goat or sheep or bull as a sufficient substitute for our own deserved punishment. This is central to our Jewish faith. In our Torah, in the third book of Moses, it's written, quote, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Leviticus 17.11 the temple sacrifices prophetically paint the perfect picture of the suffering of the Messiah. And the shocking truth is that his suffering and his death was not so much because of our Jewish people, but rather for our Jewish people. According to our own scriptures, the purpose of Messiah was to bring us back to Adonai because sin and unbelief separated us from him. Isaiah says it. More accurately, when he says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And so the Messiah's purpose was to find us and to rescue us, bringing us back to our God. And the crucifixion of Yeshua was not so much an unfortunate tragedy, but a deliberate carefully orchestrated plan designed by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, clearly foretold by his prophets. Its purpose was to provide atonement, atonement first for Israel and by virtue of God's love for all peoples of all nations for all time. My friends, let me repeat. The death of Yeshua was clearly foretold by Israel's prophets hundreds of years before he was even born. The problem is, most of our Jewish people are ignorant of our own scriptures. Isaiah, who lived 750 years before the birth of Yeshua, declared with uncanny accuracy and intricate, riveting detail the very clues that we needed to identify our awaited 
Messiah. This morning we want to look at Slevat Yeshua, the crucifixion of Yeshua. In great detail, crucifixion as a method of execution actually goes way back. It goes back to the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, who introduced it to the land of Israel, instructing it for Jewish people who refused to submit to his anti-Torah edicts. We know it was an excruciating, painful death, and it was a slow death process. If the hangings reported, think about this, if the hangings reported in the book of Esther were indeed crucifixions. They were carried out in Persia. And it has been said that crucifixion was imported into ancient Israel by the Persians then. History tells us that even in Far Eastern countries, crucifixion was practiced until as late as the early 19th century of this era. You see, a Roman citizen convicted of a capital crime would not be crucified, but would be beheaded. You see, crucifixion was designed for political revolutionaries. It was designed for pirates. It was designed for highway robbers, etc. And as we have seen, the Romans preceded crucifixion with scourging to hasten the death of the crucified. The condemned would, as the Bible says here, carry this horizontal piece of the execution stake, which was nearly 100 pounds, along with the inscription identifying his crime, hanging from his neck in a very, to a very public location. The clothes were removed from the criminal, and they raised him tied, or they raised him nailed to the crossbeam into position. And these nine-inch nails, by the way, they resembled, if you're thinking in your mind's eye of railroad spikes, they were sharper than those. They were typically driven into the wrist bones and driven into the ankles, based on archaeologist Basilios Tzaferis' 1968 discovery of skeletal remains of a crucified man in a Jerusalem tomb. Roman soldiers who drove the nails were careful to make sure that no major artery, no major vein, no major organ was punctured. Therefore, the typical time for then a person to die, if no major things like that were happening, were punctured, would be 36 hours up to three days. Inflammation of the wounds inflicted by scourging and nail puncture produced traumatic fever. The heat of the sun, the strained position of the body aggregated the fever then, intensified the pain, producing an insufferable thirst. The wounds around the nails underwent swelling and the lacerated tendons and nerves produced excruciating pain. The person usually died of heart failure as the person's body was vertically extended. And even to hasten death, the Roman soldiers could break the legs of a crucified person, rendering them unable to lift themselves to draw breath. For you see, as long as a person could hold up his weight with his legs not broken, he could stave off death for a little while, but usually his diaphragm would collapse and the person would suffocate in his own carbon dioxide. He could exhale. He couldn't exhale, although he could breathe in. And likewise, the condemned would be attacked by rabid animals, gangs of wild dogs often. Sometimes even their flesh would begin to be eaten by buzzards before they were even dead. It's a horrible means of execution. 
It was very grisly, and it was designed to be an incentive for people not to commit crimes, an object lesson for others, that if they committed political treason, that this is what was going to happen to them. It was designed to be a deterrent. A deterrent. And so whether it accomplished that deterrency or not, we don't know for sure. It's debatable. But what is interesting, though, is that the grisly aspect that I've just described of the crucifixion is absent in Luke's gospel. It's almost a matter-of-fact narrative here. There's no attempt by Luke to appeal to our pity or our sympathy toward Yeshua, but rather this is an account here that is told from the point of view, a different point of view, the point of view of victory. Luke does not depict Yeshua here as a tragic figure. He has willingly chosen to go to the execution stake in perfect obedience to the will of his father. But I wanted us for a few minutes to consider all of what I've just shared in a different way. Now, this is a rap that was produced years ago by a Messianic Jewish brother team in the movement And the video portion is a little gruesome, but I have the audio that I wanted to share with you guys. If you can turn that up a little bit as well. Listen, close your eyes for a few minutes. Listen to the words of what I've just described in in a musical fashion. It all started after Yeshua and his disciples parted from the Passover Seder. Later, we find him in the garden, a place located near the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane to get alone with God in a peaceful vicinity. With intensity, he hid his knees and prayed to the Lord. He was for sure the suffering that he would endure. While his disciples laid and slept, he prayed till sweat started mixing with blood from psychological stress. Skeptics suggest vessels explode and seems kind of bogus. Many don't know it's medically termed as hematridosis, a gradual effect it made fragile his flesh it made his physique weak even before he was beat arrested and questioned we find him in the synagogue sequestered to stand trial before the rabbinic law of the sanhedrin where they did stampede him and spit and strike him with their fist his head beaten the jolting of his brain caused a minor concussion which resulted in temporary loss of brain function others slapped him while they asked him prophesy who hit you bruising his already weakened skin tissue they thought the death penalty the pharisees were in no position to act on this decision they needed rome's permission now the race is on the second trial is taking long as he stood before Pilate, silent it's now the break of dawn yeah Listen, he was a victim of crucifixion the most horrendous roman invention the infliction of pain that the victim sustained we will explain using medical diction fall from michelangelo's depiction he was brutally marred beyond recognition his anatomy had to be scored for redemption From Pilate, they sent him to Herod's jurisdiction. Then they sent him back to Pilate for the final conviction. To appease them, he had him beaten and flogged. From a medical perspective, tell us what was involved. Astonishing, unbelievable form of punishment. Its intent was meant to extract maximum suffering. They used a whip that consisted of nine leather thongs and metal balls that would tear into the man involved. With every lash given it left, his muscles and his veins exposed underneath hanging rivers of flesh. Of 39 strikes, they weren't supposed to go over. Sometimes they did, depending on the mood of the soldier. Exposure from his shoulders to the back of his legs. Most victims at this point would start passing.
passing away. Needless to say, his blood pressure is starting to drop. His kidneys have stopped. His anatomy's going through shock. Bodily fluids he's losing through the cuts and contusions. His blood volume is reducing while he becomes disillusioned. Hard to believe he'd still be living. Critical was his condition way before the nails were even driven. A bushel of thorns were found and formed into a crown, which was placed above his face, then shoved down. They mocked hell, king of the Jews, and started to laugh. They gave him a staff, placed a rope made of wool on his back. Listen, he was a victim of crucifixion. The most horrendous Roman invention. The infliction of pain that the victim sustained, we would explain using medical diction. For from Michelangelo's depiction, he was brutally marred beyond recognition. His anatomy had to be scarred for redemption. This is the crucifixion description. Pilate gathers the masses and asketh. They should kill Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth. Allow the crowd all agrees. Set Barabbas the murderer free. Crucifixion was what Yeshua was soon to receive. He hauled the crossbar for over a hundred yards. Fatigued and scarred. Destination the place of the skull. The weight of the log is making him fall. So they seized the man from Cyrene. that made him take up the cross. The angry mob has pulled the beard from his jaw. Vision blurred. Speech slurred. The victim is starting to crawl. Reaching the end. He's put on his back. The soldiers have him pinned. Infection is setting into his skin from this condition his hands are laid in an outstretched position while spikes seven inches are being driven where the wrist is he is then lifted attached to the vertical beam which is put in the ground permanently no words in the language could explain this anguish by his wrist he's hanging his legs dangling his feet are then placed together one on top of the other the third nail is knocked in leaving him locked in the weight of his body is dropping making it impossible for him to lift to get any oxygen Unbelievable sight, seeing him hanging high He was hard to recognize like Isaiah prophesied Massive wounds to his back, a spear wound to his chest He took his last breath and died due to cardiac arrest Listen, he was a victim of crucifixion The most horrendous Roman invention The infliction of pain, the victim sustained We will explain using medical diction Far from Michelangelo's depiction He was brutally marred beyond recognition His anatomy had to be scarred for redemption This is the crucifixion description Look with me at verse 26 again As they led him away, they grabbed a man Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the countryside They placed on him the crossbeam to carry behind Yeshua You know, prisoners were forced to carry their execution stake in a processional through the streets as a final death march. This was part of their humiliation. They would be surrounded by four Roman soldiers. The soldiers saw that Yeshua could go no further, and so they were not about to carry his execution stake themselves. And so Shimon, Simon, a man from North Africa, from called Cyrene, was enlisted here by the soldiers to carry Yeshua's execution stake for him. Unfortunately, he, or undoubtedly rather, he would have been one of those many, many tens of thousands of pilgrims in Jerusalem fulfilling the mandate of Passover. Yet, the Levitical uncleanness associated with carrying a Roman cross disqualified him from participating in the Passover sacrifice later that day. It's no surprise Yeshua was unable to carry his execution stake. Dr. Edwards and the other physicians from the Journal of American Medical Association 
who studied the crucifixion, wrote this, quote, this severe scourging with its intense pain and blood loss most probably left Yeshua in a pre-shock state. The physical and mental abuse meted out by the Jews and the Romans, as well as the lack of food, water, and sleep also contributed to his generally weakened state. Therefore, even before the crucifixion, Yeshua's physical condition was at least serious and possibly critical. Now back to our text here. I find it's interesting that the gospel writer Mark lists the personal names of Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus. Possibly implying that the whole family became Messianic Jews after this face-to-face encounter with the suffering Yeshua. And so relieved of the burden of the execution stake, Yeshua turned here, it says, to address the women who followed him. And he offers them his last prophecy. He says that the barren women without children will be considered fortunate because she will not need to see the suffering of her children. During the horrific events as he's prophesying of the Jewish revolt and ensuing siege of Jerusalem, the population of the city, as you know, and I've shared here, suffered horrific violence, starvation, and barbarity. And so to emphasize the upcoming calamity of the coming tribulation, Yeshua quotes Hosea chapter 10 verse 8 here. The prophecy indicates conditions so horrible that people are going to wish for death. 40 years into the future. Yeshua concludes his prophetic word employing language from a prophecy in Ezekiel about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Ezekiel 20 verse 47. This prophecy means that in the siege of Jerusalem, nearly 40 years later, the righteous are going to face the same fate as the wicked. In other words, if the hateful fire of Rome will consume a righteous man like this, how much more would it consume everyone else? Let's talk about the place. Verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull. The somber processional ultimately reached its destination outside the city of Jerusalem. To a place called Golgotha in Aramaic. Translated here as place of a skull. We could call it Skull Hill. There's a hill outside Jerusalem today, many believe, to be the site of Golgotha. The Skull Hill is located near a garden tomb where many people believe Yeshua was buried. Throughout the centuries, interestingly enough, Arab Muslims intentionally turned Jewish and Christian holy sites into cemeteries. They assumed that burying their dead would desecrate those places. And it's interesting that the Muslims converted this This particular hill into a cemetery several centuries before archaeologists even suggested that it might be the site of the crucifixion. And that supports the theory that this was the place of a skull. Now, let's think about it for a moment about why our Passover lamb, why the Messiah Yeshua here was crucified at this place called Golgotha. How did the site of the crucifixion get that name? Well, let me make that very clear to you this morning. Golgotha is located outside of the original city walls. 
It's on a major thoroughfare, the Jericho Road. And if you know anything about Roman torture and Roman crucifixion, they always did that publicly so that everybody would see it, as I mentioned, as a potential deterrent. And it would be a deterrent. We know that Yeshua, the Messiah, though, was of the lineage of David, right? From the Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3 genealogies. And you remember what happened when King David defeated Goliath. Remember? What did he do? He cut off his head, right? He brings it to Jerusalem. And he buries it, according to tradition, outside of the ancient city of Jerusalem. Goliath's name was Goliath of Gath. Golgotha is a variant of that. It became known as the place of the burial of Goliath's skull. And so when David did this, we can speculate that Adonai was beginning to fulfill prophecy that he spoke to the, ser the serpent at the very beginning when he said that he would put enmity between your seed, the serpent, Satan's seed, and her, capital S, seed, Eve's seed, the Messiah, Genesis 3.15, first messianic prophecy. And so in terms of beginning to fulfill prophecy, we know that there was a race of supernatural beings, possibly descendants from fallen angels, that God bound from having relations with women, Nephilim, giants, maybe having to do with their size or, or their ferocity. The Anakites, another name that is sometimes translated as giants, of which the Philistine Goliath was supposedly a descendant of, was being pit against David. And so we could say in a sense that the Genesis 3.15 prophecy is talking about a demonic seed, the Anakim, the Nephilim, and a spiritual seed, the offspring of David. Now, Yeshua's father was the same father as Adam's father. He's actually referred to as the second Adam. My friends, we know that God watches over every yud and makif, every jot and tittle of his word to perform it. Amen? So David brings the skull of the demonic seed, the Anakim, Goliath, to this place, Golgotha. He buries it. And it's quite possible that he buried it at the exact location of the heel of Yeshua. I can't prove it. The serpent shall bruise Messiah's heel where the execution stake was erected. This could not happen at the other traditional site of the crucifixion known today as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is clearly inside the city walls, although that site today is venerated by most Christians as Golgotha. This is due in large part to other scholars who assert that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre location could have been outside the walls, yet recent archaeological opinion positions the present Damascus Gate as the northern boundary of Jerusalem in the early 30s of the Common Era, making the Church of the Holy Sepulchre location inside the city walls. So go back with me in Torah to Leviticus chapter 1 for a moment. And we read something interesting in verse 10. If his sacrifices from the flock, speaking of offerings from the sheep or from the goats, for a burnt offering, he shall bring a male without blemish. He is to slaughter it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. 
the place of a skull, Skull Hill, Golgotha, is north side of the city, midway between the Mount of Olives and Mount Zion. Outside the Damascus Gate is northward. Leviticus chapter 4 verse 12 speaks about the sin offering being taken outside the camp, outside the city. Now you might wonder where we then get the term Calvary. It doesn't appear in the Bible. Well, there are three words in different translations to describe this place. Again, Golgotha is the Aramaic word for skull. The Greek word is cranion, from which we get the word cranium. The Latin word for skull is calvaria. Calvary. Now, many of us have viewed this site often when we were in Israel, and every time that we see it, we're overwhelmed with a mixture, right, of both sorrow and joy. Today, it's really just a stark hill rising next to a crowded Arab bus station. But whenever I think about what Yeshua did there, I'm amazed at the level, the depth of his love for us. Now look with me back in Luke chapter 23. Let's reread verse 33, the second part. There they crucified him at a place called the skull, and the evildoers, one on his right and one on his left. Then they cast lots, verse 34, the second part, dividing up his clothing. Verse 36, the soldiers likewise mocked him, coming up and bringing him sour wine, In verse 38, there was an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. This is a typical scene of Roman soldiers in their practice of crucifixion. These guys are probably career soldiers. They are hardened soldiers. They have participated in this act of crucifixion so many times. See, it was necessary to have a group of four present to maintain order and to make certain that the sentence was indeed carried out. What are the soldiers? They're just, these soldiers are just doing time, my friends. In a totally heartless matter, manner, they are at the foot of the execution stake. And as they see the suffering of the man Yeshua, they're so hard-hearted, they're so callous to this kind of thing, so unmoved by it, that what do they do? They cast lots, they gamble for his clothes, which was the legal perk, if, as, as it were, of the executioners. There were two main garments that they were gambling for, the cloak or the outer garment and the inner garment, the tunic. The cloak, the outer garment, was divided into four parts, perhaps along the seams. But the tunic, the inner garment, consisting of one composite, complete piece of material, was worth much more if that was left intact than if it were cut into four pieces for the four soldiers. And so, again, this was also another fulfillment of prophecy from Psalm 22:19, although the soldiers did not know that they were fulfilling it. The Romans no doubt kept a schedule, a busy schedule of executions. It's not surprising that here that we read that two outlaws were placed on execution stakes with Yeshua, one on his right, one on his left. The fact that the Son of God was executed right along with other criminals adds to the shame and reproach that he bore, again, quote, being numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53, 12. They gave Yeshua wine mixed with myrrh, Mark's account tells us. This is consistent with the passage in the Talmud that states this, quote, When one is led out to execution, he's given a goblet of wine containing a grain of frankincense. 
in order to benumb his senses, for it is written, give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto the bitter in soul. Tractate Sanhedrin 43a, that actually quotes Proverbs 31, verse 6. But notice that Yeshua declines to drink it in Mark's account. Could it be, my friends, it was Yeshua's way of embracing his death to the fullest extent? since it would be the means of world redemption. It was common here to place the man's name in a statement of the charges on a placard over the head of the criminal. Normally the placard would say deserter, it would say thief, it would say insurrectionist, it would say murderer, it would say etc. terrorist. In this case, the soldiers placed the written notice stating that Yeshua was being crucified for the crime of being the king of the Jews. Now that is a logical charge from the Roman perspective, right? As the Romans were more concerned about political sedition than a religious Messiah. But the charge was broad enough also to cover the accusations coming from some of the Jewish leaders that we've looked at, that this Yeshua claimed to be King Messiah. You'll recall that it was Yeshua's kingship that Pilate discussed most with him. And we observed in our study that Pilate understood kingship just in an earthly fashion, in a political sense, and did not understand in any sense how Yeshua could be a king. And yet, ironically enough, that is the title put on his execution stake. Well, when they saw the charge that Pilate had placed on the placard, some of the men from Caiaphas go back to Pilate and complain, quote, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. John 19, 21. Pilate enjoyed the joke, and the thought of offending Jewish dignity pleased him. And he replied, quote, what I have written, I have written. By this... Even this, the father overruled the shame and the reproach of his son Yeshua and saw to it that the very charges against Yeshua proclaimed his honor and proclaimed his deity. In other words, the father used Pilate's sign intended by him to mock the people in general, right? To represent a crucified man as king of the Jews and Yeshua in particular to announce an eternal truth to the whole community and by implication to the whole world. All four of the gospels record the wording on this placard with slight verbal variations. It was written in Hebrew, the vernacular of Israeli Jews. It was written in Latin, the official language of the Roman army, and in Greek, the common medium of culture and conversation. And verse 35 says, the people stood there watching, and even the leaders were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, the chosen one. And so because this event was so public, various groups of people were beginning to notice the proceedings and the provocations were ironic here and startling. As the true Messiah, Yeshua could have delivered himself if that, in fact, was the will of the Father. And likewise, it must have seemed impossible that a rebel rabbi hanging on a Roman execution stake could actually be the true Messiah. Surely the curse of such a death could not be put on the real king Messiah as the Torah states in Deuteronomy 21, 23, a person who has been hanged on a tree is cursed by God. 
The passers-by, the Bible tells us here, as well as the Jewish leaders, could not see that it was actually Yeshua's very presence on the execution stake that was fulfilling the messianic redemption awaiting within Adonai's mysterious plan. We might recall that Psalm 22 is all about the righteous sufferer. Ten books of the New Covenant Scriptures quote it. They allude to it, various portions of it. The psalm begins, Eli, Eli, lema shivachtani, which is translated, my God, my God, how, why have you forsaken me? And although this psalm many years later was understood as a reference to Yeshua, because he used those very words in the various synoptic accounts here while on the stake. It really is a psalm expressing the spirit of someone like Job, who in the end was a righteous sufferer who defended his righteousness before Adonai against the explanation of his so-called friends and wonders why God has abandoned him. But here is the significant difference in Luke's gospel. Yeshua has chosen to be the helpless sufferer. Job did not choose it, remember? Other righteous sufferers in the past have not chosen to experience the suffering that has come their way, whether it's the loss of a family member or a friend or their health or whatever. And yet it's clear here that Yeshua has willingly gone to the execution stake. He has willingly submitted himself to that suffering, to that rejection, to that abuse, and he has done so to save the world. April, if you'd come up for a moment. I want to close with some hope this morning that we see here in verse 34. But Yeshua was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. As Yeshua hung there that Passover afternoon, morning and afternoon, right leading up to Passover, he offers seven statements. Seven statements in total that the Gospels record. The first of these seven is here this morning. After the initial spasm of pain had passed, Yeshua offers a prayer here. It's incredible for forgiveness. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, it says here Yeshua was saying. It's in the present tense in the Greek, which means Yeshua kept on saying when they drove in the nails, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. As they ridiculed him, as they mocked him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And with these words, Yeshua lived by his own rule, to quote, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Yeshua's prayer spoke specifically of those who perpetrated the crime. But it, I believe it spoke more broadly of the whole of the Jewish people who, quote, did not recognize the time of their visitation. 
Yeshua's words empathize with the human condition. He understood our sinful and our confused state of being, my friends. For you see, you and I, we don't even understand sin as God understands sin. The Son of Man had compassion on us. Even as he suffered under the ugliest expressions of human cruelty. He asked pardon. He asked forgiveness for us. Not solely on the basis of our ignorance. But on the basis of his compassion. Two issues about forgiveness as we close this morning I think are worth noting for us. Number one. Forgiveness is the greatest need that we have in our lives. It's not more money. It's not more friends. It's not even better health that we need. I know a number of you have gone through some pretty intense COVID and some are still not here because of that this week. It's God's forgiveness. You see, 100 years from now, more money, more friends, better health, that'll all be useless. But Adonai's forgiveness will be the most valuable treasure that you'll still have. The scriptures teach that we are all sinners. None of us are exempt. And number two, the only place in the universe to receive forgiveness is from Yeshua. You recall early in our study of the Gospel of Luke, Yeshua was confronted by the paralyzed man and he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the Jewish leaders were indignant. They challenged Yeshua by thinking, who is this fellow speaking blasphemy? Who can pardon sins but God? Well, Yeshua read their thoughts. And he replied, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to pardon sins. He said to the paralyzed one, I tell you, get up and take your cot and go home. Two miracles that day. The miracle of forgiveness and the miracle of healing. Yeshua indicated forgiveness is the greater of the two miracles. If you'd stand with me today, the scriptures say, for sin's payment is death, but, but God's gracious gift, say gift with me, is eternal life in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. Yeshua prayed a prayer, Father, Forgive them. And he included us in that prayer too. Did Adonai answer that prayer? Well, it's really up to you. It's really up to me. Yeshua offers us forgiveness today. And if you're listening on the podcast, salvation is a free gift. But you will not benefit from that gift until you accept it. Yes, forgiveness is free to you. But it was paid, as we've seen, at an exorbitant price. Yeshua took our sins in his body so that we could be forgiven. He took our, our dirt. He took our filth upon himself so that we could stand before the Father clean. Will you accept Yeshua's forgiveness today and begin a lifelong journey with him? That's the question. 
the only question that really matters in our lives. Father, we thank you today for this preordained plan of redemption. Nothing happened by circumstance, nothing happened by, but it was your providence and your pre-planning. Isaiah 750 years earlier prophesied how we're good. The psalmist in Psalm 22 explained more. So many prophecies in our prayers for our people to know our own scriptures. To see the one of whom Moses and the law spoke, Yeshua of Nazareth. Many are afraid in Messianic synagogues to speak about Slivat Yeshua. We're not embarrassed about it. We're not afraid. It just deepens our trust in our marvelous master, Yeshua. Maybe there's someone listening on the podcast. Maybe there's someone here that has never made Yeshua the Lord of their life before. They've never come face to face with that question. What will you do with this man, Yeshua? I want to invite you today to Repent of your sin, turn away from it, confess it to God. He's faithful and just to forgive it and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Turn away from sin, receive the atoning work of the Messiah at Golgotha on that tree of sacrifice for the forgiveness of all of your sins and begin a journey with Yeshua. It's the most exciting life journey that you will ever could even imagine. It's not an end, it's a beginning. So for those listening who are being challenged right now, take up the challenge. It's a free gift. You can't can't earn it. You could never earn it. Over 613 commandments and scriptures, you've broken at least one. The temple no longer stands even. You can't even atone for it there. So come to grips with your maker. Receive the... Jewish Messiah Yeshua today and begin a journey of life. The Bible will now not be a closed book to you. It will be the most exciting read you will ever, ever embark on because it's transformational. It will take you going one direction and it will cause you to make a left or right turn to get on the path right back with God. And Lord, I pray for those who might have received Yeshua today through that or have been contemplating and finally taken the challenge that, Lord, bring other believers into their life to disciple them, to pray with them, and to study the word of God with them. And Lord, may this multiplication keep happening until the last day when the trumpet and the shofar will sound and you will return back to the Mount of Olives where you were crucified. Millions have made this decision and can testify to it. We're proud to be Yeshua followers here at Tree of Life. You've given us a holy mission and a heavenly mission that all Israel shall be saved. Lord, we take up that mantle today. And we run the race that is set before us. Enduring the shame as Yeshua endured the shame. We bless you today, Lord God, for your word and for your spirit being amongst us. And Lord, as you told Aaron or Moses to tell his brother Aaron how to bless the children of Israel, we want to bless them with your blessing today, Lord. And we say, 
Ye er Adonai panave lecha vichuneka. Yisa Adonai panave lecha viasem lecha shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you today. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you peace. In the name of the Prince of all peace, the Messiah, Yeshua, and all of us who are with him said, Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out, too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.